and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. You're going to want to remember that because we're about to hear Jesus tell us about what he calls the sign of Jonah. So we'll need to have this firmly fixed in our hearts and in our heads. Let's be clear. What's the sign of Jonah? Well, simple. We just read about it. Three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish. Oh, yeah. And then there's that part about how God speaks to that fish, and Jonah is miraculously delivered back up to the land of the living. All right. But that cemented, that sign of Jonah cemented in our brains. Let's pray now, and we'll dig in to our New Testament and the sign of Jonah. Father, we come before you now, and we thank you for all of the truths that we've expressed and prayerfully declared to you in song. God, we thank you for the sweetness of the fellowship of the saints as they gather together, united by your matchless Holy Spirit. And Lord, we just pray now that as we incline our hearts and minds to your word, that you would open our eyes. God, we know that if we understand anything about the spiritual truth that you've given us, it's not because we're smart. It's not because we're disciplined or righteous. We, we know you've told us the things of God are spiritually discerned. And so we, we plead with you, by your grace and mercy, would you open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word, God. Grow us up. Help us to mature as followers of Jesus. We pray that you would guard us now from error and guide us in your truth. For Christ's sake, we ask. Amen. Let me start with a question. What things do you think that Jesus would look at and say, that is evil? Maybe you're making a mental list in your mind now. Well, today we're going to see Jesus call something evil that may perhaps take us a bit by surprise. It's not that we're surprised that this thing necessarily is bad or evil in Jesus' mind, but, but maybe it, it wouldn't make our top five list, maybe not even our top ten list of things that are evil. Let's, let's check out what Jesus considers to be evil here in Luke chapter 11. I'll invite you to take your Bibles, if you haven't already, and turn to Luke chapter 11, be beginning in verse 29. Luke 11, beginning in verse 29. And if you're using our church Bibles and the seat backs in front of you, that's found on page 817. Luke 11, beginning in verse 29, let's read what Jesus calls about the sign of Jonah. And I need to get to my New Testament too. Give me just a second. <laughs> Luke 11, beginning in verse 29. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, Something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. 
For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it's bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Okay. Did you catch what it was? What was it that Jesus clearly and unabashedly points to and calls evil? Well, It's actually a people, not a thing. It's a kind of unbelief in his people that seeks a sign. It seeks a certain kind of proof, all the while refusing to see the evidence that the Lord has provided. Look back in verse 29 as Jesus begins this section. He says, this generation is, here's our word, evil. It's an evil generation. Why? What seeks a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Now, we've just read about the sign of Jonah, and the Jewish audience listening to Jesus' words here in the first century would have been very familiar with this story. What, What was the miraculous sign of Jonah? Well, of course, three days and then three nights in the belly of the great fish, and then against all odds... God's divine power bringing back this rebellious prophet to the land of the living. So, let's see what Jesus has to say about this Jonah sign in verse 30. He says, For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> this, this is a point at which you should press pause in your reading and just take a deep breath and recognize the significance of what has just been stated here. Jesus is making a massive claim. Who's the Son of Man? Well, He is. The Son of Man is actually Jesus very favorite self-designation. He loves to call himself the Son of Man, hearkening back to Daniel 7. And Jesus just said that just like Jonah back then in the Old Testament had been a sign for that wicked, profligate Nineveh, so I am going to be a sign for you in that same manner. That's a pretty big deal. Now, it's not just, it's not merely that Jesus is putting himself on par with Jonah. Jesus is saying in no uncertain terms that he is greater than Jonah, greater than Jonah's sign. Take a gander down at verse 32. Behold, something, what's that word? Greater, something greater than Jonah is here. Now, again, think for a moment how mind-bogglingly big this claim is. 
Jesus is greater than the great prophet Jonah? I mean, we don't have statistics, but I'd be willing to wager the salvation and forgiveness of Nineveh was the greatest revival in world history. Never has a man presumed to speak a very brief and begrudging, perhaps, gospel to a wicked, over-the-edge people and the whole city repents in dust and ashes. Jesus says, you're looking at something greater than Jonah. What a massive claim this is. I love how we were singing earlier. Uh, I'm so grateful for Ruth Ann and, and her uh, thoughtful selection of songs as it uh, relates to what we're preaching through. And, and she selected a song today, which was very appropriate. We've just been singing that Christ is the true and better Adam. He is the second Adam. He is the true and better Isaac, the sacrifice of the Father and His beloved Son. He's the true and better Moses, the one who's delivered his people from bondage and slavery. He's the true and better David, the humble shepherd who becomes the mighty king. And here Jesus is boldly declaring that he is the greater Jonah, the true and better Jonah. And you got to remember that Jesus has already spoken this truth. He's already told us ahead of time how this is going to go down. Just a, a chapter or two before, in, uh, in Luke 9, 22, Jesus says, and I quote, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Matthew's Gospel spells it out in even greater detail than we see here in Luke. Matthew writes, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man, Jesus, be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. These dots are not hard to connect, are they? There's no guesswork here about what Jesus is calling the sign of Jonah. Jesus has made it abundantly clear the sign of Jonah that he's referring to is his own death and resurrection. All this is as plain as the nose on your face. But you've got to ask, why is he calling them evil for seeking a sign? Why all this talk of judgment? And what's he mean by saying there's going to be no sign to this generation except this one, except this Jonah sign? I mean, hasn't Jesus been doing all kinds of miraculous signs and wonders before this? Well, yeah, we've been reading about it for quite some time. I mean... Back in verse 14 of this very same chapter, just scan up a bit, we see that Jesus literally healed a mute guy by casting out a demon from him. I mean, I'm not sure what Merriam-Webster would classify sign, but that makes my list of signs. And spoiler alert, if you keep reading Luke, Jesus is going to continue to do a lot more of them. In fact... 
That's sort of how we got here. There has been and will continue to be an abundance of evidence to show that Jesus is precisely who he says he is. He has healed the sick. He has, we've seen it in Luke, he has raised the dead. He has taught with unparalleled power and divine authority. He has preached the kingdom of God is here because the king, me, I am here. And the prevailing sentiment from the crowd amidst this flurry of signs and wonders is, eh, we're not really sure. How about you show us some more signs? We need more evidence, Jesus, that you are who you say you are. So, to the unbelieving skeptics who have been confronted with Jesus' words and deeds, but they're still holding out for more, Jesus points to this singular sign, to this chief sign, to this solitary and sufficient miracle upon which the entirety of your Christian faith rests. His own death and resurrection from the grave. Everything hinges on this on this sign of Jonah. Which is why the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ has not been raised, if Jesus is really not the greater Jonah, then you are of all people, Christians, most to be pitied. There's not a more pathetic group on the planet than you, than me, if Jesus is still in the grave. But Christ has been raised. The greater Jonah. He gave the singular and sufficient sign to prove that he is who he says he is. Now, I don't need to tell you that this need for a sign, this demand for more evidence, is not just a thing of the past. This is not just something that the Jews who sought a sign were interested in. Now, we struggle with this today, too, don't we? Perhaps even you here today are not exactly sure what you think of this Jesus business. The only way to be saved? Perhaps you know a family member or a loved one who just, they're open, but they're missing some some evidence. They need some more proof, if you will. This is not just a thing of the past. Well, my words, Friendship Community Church, would be utterly insufficient to try to convince you or explain to you what we should do about this sign of Jonah. But you know, we're fortunate that Jesus tells a parable in just a few chapters. I promise not to teach through the parable now. We'll get to that after Christmas. But in Luke 16, Jesus tells a parable. He throws a truth right alongside this dynamic of needing more proof, or so we say, to help us unlock the reality of this spiritual dimension. And so all I want to do is just read to you Jesus' own words, his own parable, and maybe, maybe we can connect these two concepts 
together. This is Luke 16, 19 to 31. So keep a finger in Luke 11, and you can turn, or I'll just read to you Jesus' parable about this very thing at which, about which he's teaching now, about this needing more evidence, needing more proof. Jesus tells the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, Luke 16, 19 to 31. The Son of God says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus by his side. And he called out, Father Abraham. This isn't the song. This is a different line. Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this... Between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, listen now, this is, this is the punchline. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now I wonder who Jesus was talking about there. Did you catch the punchline at the end? The rich man pleads, send more convincing proof to my unbelieving family members so that they would be believed, so that they would believe, easy for me to say, so that they'd be saved from God's judgment. And what's the response? They have all the evidence they need. God has given them His Word. He's given them Moses and the prophets, which point to Jesus as the Messiah, as the only way to be saved. This rich man says, no, that's not enough evidence. They need more. Send someone from the dead to prove, Abraham, without a shadow of a doubt, that this is real. If they have that kind of proof, then they'll repent. And Jesus says, parabolically, that's not how this works. 
if they don't believe the evidence which God has already given them, which is where, by the way? In God's Word. More than that, in the Old Testament, which means you probably ought to not unhitch yourselves from it. God's Word, the the Old Covenant, is, is pointing to this. The Law and the Prophets if they don't believe that, if they don't believe God's word and what it points to, then no amount of evidence that they're going to receive, even a dead man rising to life, is going to be sufficient for them. Do you see? They won't even believe if someone rises from the dead, and he did. Isn't this exactly what's happening in Luke 11? These unbelieving skeptics are coming to Jesus who has already shown in spades that he is the divine son of God. And they're saying, we need more, Jesus, more proof, more evidence. And Jesus said, if you're seeking a sign, this is all the evidence you're going to get. The sign of Jonah, i.e. the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that, friends, the sign of Jonah is the singular sufficient sign that God has given to a lost and unbelieving world to save them from their sins. That's it. And if they won't believe that sign, there is no amount of evidence, none, that will convince them otherwise. This doesn't mean that Jesus isn't going to do any more miracles. Keep reading. He does. But what it means is none of these other miracles are going to do it for you if you refuse to believe this one. So, if you're here today, and you might be here today, and you're unsure about the claims of Christ, maybe as a child... Or as an adult, you've, you, you've heard this stuff. You're here, but there's some questions. Hear his own words. This is the testimony of the man himself. This is it. This is your sign. What's that old Jeff Foxworthy line? Some of you, some of you are familiar with Jeff Foxworthy. Here's your sign. It's the sign of Jonah. Jesus died. Jesus was buried for three days. And Jesus rose again in victory over sin and death. And right now, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, Most High. He calls himself the living one who died and is now alive forevermore. Will you believe this? Do you believe this? God will not give you a clearer sign. He will not give you a better sign than His Son's death and resurrection. This is what our faith boils down to. The death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And based upon His own words, I appeal to you now. Everyone within the earshot of my voice, Believe. Believe. 
No amount of church attendance, no amount of good deeds, no amount of CCD class, no baptism, no nothing is going on the final day of judgment, is going to scrub your sins clean and allow you to stand before a holy and perfect God. There is one way. And it's through the blood of Jesus Christ who died your death and gave you His life. You don't need more proof. You might think you need more proof. Jesus has given you all the proof you need. He died and He rose. That's it. Now, after pointing us to this singular sufficient sign that's necessary for saving faith, Jesus proceeds to point us to a couple of witnesses. Do you see that? Two clear, concrete examples of what it looks like to believe that this evidence that God has provided is true. And in both cases, in both cases of these witnesses, Jesus does something that he loves to do. He does this all the time in the Bible. He employs a lesser than to greater than argument. It's as if Jesus is saying, if this smaller, weaker, more pale, less conclusive evidence is enough for these people then how much more should you believe? You who have the clearest, fullest, best evidence available. Now he's going to circle back around to this Jonah account in just a moment, but he breaks for a moment from the Jonah story and highlights a different example. Jonah's uh, and, and the Ninevites are going to be our second witness, but, but first he brings forward witness A, exhibit A. The queen of the south. Look at verse 31 here in Luke 11. The queen of the south, Jesus says, will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. You see the lesser to greater than element? Now, if you're curious, you can read all about this queen of the south, also called the queen of Sheba, in 1 Kings chapter 10. It's a fantastic story. Remember, God had blessed King Solomon with superlative wisdom. Nobody has wisdom like this guy has wisdom. And he added to that peerless wealth. So many gifts God had given to Solomon to complement his request for wisdom. And when the report of him, the report of Solomon, reaches the queen of Sheba, the queen of the south, in a far-off, distant land, she, at great expense, at great lengths, seeks out, seeks to, to, to see herself whether this is true. Now, we're not positive where she's coming from. Some biblical commentators say she's probably coming from Ethiopia, from the south, Others say, no, she was probably coming from, from like Yemen, from the very corner of the Saudi Arabian Peninsula there. Wherever she's coming from, it was a long way away. She didn't hop on a plane and get there in a few hours. At great lengths, at great expense, she shows up before King Solomon in Jerusalem. And what she saw completely overwhelmed her. 
Scripture says, literally, there was no more breath in her. Let me just read you a snippet here. You don't need to turn there unless you want, but first, just, just a sampling of, of that account. First Kings 10, beginning of verse 6. And she said, that's the queen of Sheba, to, to the king, that's Solomon. The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God. That Lord is in all caps. Blessed be Yahweh, says this pagan, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. And there's so much more to this story, but, but please don't miss this. When this queen of the south, this queen of Sheba, witnessed God's wisdom and blessing upon Solomon's life and in his kingdom, her, the result was she worshipped Yahweh. And Jesus says, one day at the final judgment, this queen of the south is going to take the witness stand against you, he points to his generation. Because she witnessed something far lesser. It was genuine what she saw. It was, it was real wisdom. It was real blessing from the Lord. But it was just a shadow of what to come. And yet she believed. And without clearing his throat, Jesus says, someone greater than Solomon is here. You see, she had been overwhelmed at Solomon's kingdom, but Jesus has been proclaiming far and wide the kingdom of God. Not just the kingdom of Solomon. God's kingdom is at hand. I mean, for crying out loud, the king of kings is standing in front of them. And they say, eh, prove it. We need more. Queen of the Souths going to rise up in judgment against you, Jesus says. And then he continues with a second witness. In like manner, Jesus circles back to the example, to the account of Jonah, to a second group of witnesses. Look at verse 32. He says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, here we hear, here we hear it again, something greater than Jonah is here. So, at the very end, the Lord, the judge of all the earth, calls men to give an account. And when he does, the men of that wicked pagan city, Nineveh, will rise up and condemn the people of his own generation. Why? Well, for the very same reason. Because when they were confronted with the message of Jonah, that reluctant message from a reluctant prophet, remember the guy who had been in the belly of the fish for three days and then spat out on dry land? They did an about face. They repented and tasted the grace and goodness of Yahweh. And yet Jonah was just a forerunner 
Oh, how Jonah pales in comparison to the one who would die for the sins of his people and rise again three days later. And you, Jesus says, you have the real deal. I am the greater Jonah. And I'm standing before you and you refuse to believe my words. You want a sign? There is but one sign which will be given for you. The singular and sufficient sign that rises above all the other signs, all the other miracles. It's my death and my resurrection. If you will not receive this, if you'll not receive the sign of Jonah, then there's no sign, there's no evidence left to give. I hope, friends, this is very clear and simple. And the application for our lives today is not a big stretch. So I'll simply ask the obvious. Will the Queen of the South rise up and say anything about you? What will the men of Nineveh testify about you at the final day of judgment? Consider, dear friend, how much greater revelation you have received than the Queen of Sheba or the men of Nineveh. You have heard Jesus' own words. You who have heard about his death and resurrection from the grave, you who have access to the whole council of Holy Scripture, you have been graciously, lovingly warned and today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Lindsay mentioned earlier that um, the elders, they do this every week. They, they stand up front and, and they're just here for, for prayer. And we, we would invite you, we would love nothing more to, to in addition to praying for anything that you, that you have, any prayer needs that you have, we would love nothing more than to talk with you about how to have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. If you're here today and, and God's word is hitting you like a bullseye right in the soul, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. This is it. It doesn't get better than this. It doesn't get clearer than this, than the sign of Jonah, Jesus says. Well, all this is fairly straightforward. We're about done. Only, you sort of wonder, what's up with this next part? Like, Jesus, without any further transition, proceeds to start telling the crowds... I mean, he's just hit a pretty high point, wouldn't you agree? Sign of Jonah, pretty big deal. And then he starts telling the crowds about lamps and light, about good eyes and bad eyes. Well, the light, friends, should not be hard to identify. The light is Jesus himself and the message of the kingdom that he's come to bring. The light is Jesus. Isn't that, after all, how John's gospel begins? In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And again, in John chapter 3, and, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world. Who's the light? Jesus is the light. 
and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So, if we fail to see the light of Jesus, friends, it is not because his flame is too dim. I was reading one commentator. He said, it's not that Jesus lacks lumens. Make no mistake about it. The light of Christ is not some weak, flickering candle threatening to extinguish in a world of darkness around us. No. The problem then is not whether the light of Jesus is bright enough. The problem is that if we can't see him, it's because our eyes are the issue. Our eyes are too dim. Our eyes are too blind to see or to comprehend the truth that he has come to bring. And the key, friends, to these two passages, what, what's the sign of Jonah have to do? Now Jesus is talking about ophthalmology. God, what? The key to connecting these two passages is right here in verse 34. Look at it with me. Verse 34. Put your finger on the part that says, when it, referring to your eye, when it is bad. Verse 34. That Greek word, written in the original language, the Bible was written in Koine Greek, that Greek word for bad can also be translated, wait for it, evil. And as a matter of fact... That word, bad or evil, is the same exact word for evil that Jesus used back in verse 29. Hmm. You know, same kind of evil that Jesus used to describe that evil generation who refused to believe in the passage above. So what's the point? Well, the point is that there is a kind of eye, an evil unbelieving eye that can't see the light. It won't see the light, no matter how brightly the light shines. This light metaphor at the end of this passage is Jesus' way of driving home the same point that he was telling us about the sign of Jonah. If we don't see him, he's not the problem. The light's not too dim. It's not that he has not provided sufficient evidence. It's that in our persistent unbelief, we refuse to see him. Which, of course, begs the question, how do you fix this? If you understand, rightfully so, that the stakes are high, we're talking about eternal life here. Then if you're struggling to see the light, how can your eyes Go from blind to seeing. Well, to do this, we, we, just, we just need to remember the context of what Jesus has been teaching all throughout the book of Luke. Just back up a bit. Just a few verses ago, here in the same chapter, in Luke 11, verses 9 and 10, Jesus tells us how to see, how to receive. Let me read to you Luke 11. 9 and 10, we'll end with this. And I tell you, 
ask, and it will be given. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. And then just a few verses later, verse 13 of chapter 11, Jesus says, If you then, who are evil, now, It's probably just a coincidence, but this word evil is the same exact word that Jesus is using here about those who refuse to see his signs. It's the same exact word for evil that Jesus used to describe an eye that won't see the light. If you then who are evil, same word, know how to give good gifts to your children, and you do, how much more? Will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit, the one with the power to turn the light on in your dark and sightless eyes, will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Friends, our problem. Struggling with doubt as a believer, or perhaps struggling whether to believe this thing at all. Our problem is not a lack of evidence. Our problem is a lack of sight. And Jesus said, you get it by asking. If you come to him, he will not, Jesus will not, if you come to him in faith, turn you away. So we're going to close by singing a song that you know very well, I hope. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light. He's my light, my strength, and my song. Let's pray and then we'll sing. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemies... We're now seated at your table, and it's not our doing, it's yours. Jesus, thank you. Lord, forgive us for foolishly believing that all we, all we really need is just a little more proof, just a little more evidence, God. Forgive us of our faithlessness, forgive us of our foolishness, and in, in our souls... We pray, God, we ask that you would give your very spirit to shine the eternally bright light of Jesus. The one whom you tell us will be the very radiance of heaven. On that day when there's no more sun and it's your splendor, Christ, that will light up eternity. We pray that you would shine your light on us by the power of your spirit. Christ, it's in you alone our hope is found. Help the one who has been walking with you for years and years and years to not grow weary, to take courage and encouragement from you, Christ, our light. And we pray now that you would do the miracle even today, Lord, of opening the eyes of those who have not seen to show them the face of the Savior.
Lord, may we, as broken, insufficient vessels, but your vessels nonetheless, may we shine the light of Christ to a watching world around, that the glory and the goodness of the gospel of Jesus would be seen and believed. Give us that grace, Father, to grow up in it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.